When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking... Why is The Sopranos reaching new audiences? It all started 22 years ago when a mobster walked into a psychiatrist's office. Mr. Soprano? <clears throat> yeah. That was the launch of The Sopranos, a show hailed as one of the greatest TV dramas of all time. And to its many fans of the original generation and new ones, it still is. Over six seasons, viewers watched patriarch Tony Soprano face and usually fail a raft of moral tests, fret about his family and bump off a fair few enemies along the way while enjoying his favourite gigantic Italian lunches. When the credits rolled in 2007 with that famous ending, many thought the Sopranos had sung their last. But no, Tony is back on our screens, this time as a teenager in a prequel film called The Many Saints of Newark. It's written and produced by The Sopranos creator David Chase, my guest this week. Chase mined the saga from his own experiences growing up in an Italian-American family. So why did the Hollywood veteran decide now was the time to bring his beloved main character back to life as a younger man? And what does he make of the show's enduring success? And by way of warning, there are spoilers galore in this episode. We couldn't think of a way to get round them. David Chase, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's 14 years since The Sopranos was last on our television screens, other than as, as repeats. I suppose you could have decided at any point that you wanted to revisit this extraordinarily powerful TV story. So why now? I miss the characters, actually. I miss writing those characters. I, I always enjoyed that tremendously. Have they been in your head all these years, having conversations with them? <laughs> no, no, they're not in my head having a conversation. You know, I think about them occasionally and ideas for them crop up. And when I get together with the other writers socially, we talk about, I mean, we don't pitch ideas, but we talk about about them as characters and how deep or not deep they are. One thing that I suppose which I didn't think about watching the ending of the original television series, or I think The Economist called it the anti-ending, that it did leave... The perhaps, I don't want to say only, but the best option was to go back to the origin story, particularly to Tony Soprano's origin story. You wouldn't want to take on the Sopranos, would you, after the ending that, that, that you conceived? I didn't even know what an origin story was until we started the marketing for this movie. Apparently, it's like for Marvel movies, it tells where the, the guy came from or whatever. That doesn't interest me at all, really. We just wanted to do a, a solid, respectable gangster movie. 
it's interesting because I was going to ask you, so we went along a bit about prequelitis, you know, the idea of prequels and how how absorbing you found them or not. But it sounds kind of not really, that you didn't set out thinking you've got to get back somehow to what happened before. We knew that Warner Brothers was paying for a Sopranos movie, so we put a Sopranos kid in there. But, you know, it was interesting because that was established during the series, that Dickie and Tony were mentor and pupil. And we did want to explore that. But we weren't really thinking, oh, we'll see where Tony came from. I mean, all the way during the series, you had conversation, even even pictures, even flashbacks about Tony's life. We really didn't need much more. My son is watching the series and he walked into the kitchen when I was watching The Many Saints of Newark and ran out screaming, don't spoil it for me, because, of course, he's still discovering The Sopranos. And that did make me wonder how you balance the story between older Sopranos fans and those who are coming to it with fresh eyes. Well, it concerned us that some people would not know the, you know, the inside baseball. We tried to make a movie that anybody could enjoy and it would be understandable to anybody. And I believe that we did, but apparently some people are pissed off that it's that there's too much fan service, or I don't I don't know what. But I, I believe the thing stands alone as a, as a gangster movie. But it's hard for me to see it that way since I may be deceiving myself, you know. And so let's talk about the story in and of itself. The Many Saints of Newark it takes place in New Jersey in 1960s and 1970s. Is it as much for you about revisiting? that era, as it is about the attraction of, as you say, bringing back some element of, of what is going to be the the Sopranos into your life as a, a creator. If we were going to do a prequel, it was going to have to be in Newark because that's where in the series it was established that Tony's crew and before that it was his father's crew and before that, that that was in Newark. And so... That's what we were going to do. But when you talk about Newark, New Jersey, right away you think, oh, the Newark race riots, yeah. And that seemed like um, good turf to ride on. They're the backdrop or part of the backdrop to the film. How much of the protests or the awareness of them and what they signified for the society and also for the changes that it's charting, I think, very... Well, in the film, it's almost like sometimes you just feel that sort of the sands or the, the tides changing. Not very much time has passed in the plot, but something feels different. Is that something you felt yourself? And how much did you experience that directly? It, well, it really was a changing time. I mean, my mother was born in Newark, New Jersey and lived her life there until she got married. And that's where she met my father. And that was a long time ago, the 60s everywhere with everything especially the late 60s was a complete a complete typhoon and that's what we wanted to get were you also thinking you know when you're making these things in the context of now and you filmed the movie in 2019 but that's a, a year before that lives matter protests about the us and and a lot of the rest of the world how relevant that background would be it would always be relevant because america's racial problems never went away but we didn't know, obviously, that George Floyd was going to be murdered, but the streets were going to blow up once again. So we had the movie in the can, finished and done, 
as it is now, as far as the racial stuff is concerned. And then we had to go away for COVID. And during that year, America turned upside down with very, very strong protests and violence on the, on the part of the authorities. And so it looked like we were very prescient, but we weren't. And it just goes to show you that it hasn't gone away. It's just there l- lurking under the surface. And now it's closer to the surface again. James Gandolfini was the actor who immortalised Tony Soprano in the TV series. For the film, his son Michael steps into his shoes and plays the teenage Tony with some of the same quirks and the same mannerisms. It can give you a shudder from time to time. It was quite a performance. Yeah, it is. It really is. I have lost track of Michael Gandolfini between the time his father died and 2019. But then he came back to New York to go to school. And we had lunch with him, and, and it was very pleasant, but he was not James Gandolfini in any stretch of the imagination. But I knew that he would still work. And then in this read-through, it wasn't even his scene. Two other actors were reading their scene, and he was listening to it. And just the way he was listening was just like his own man. It was just incredible. I was stunned. It made me laugh. It, so it wasn't like you um, sure you would... Tell me the unvarnished truth. You didn't think I'm just that this is, I've got to have him. It could have been someone else. Theoretically, someone else had presented themselves. We had done a lot of casting and we hadn't found anything. Is that because you were looking for something so specific that would be the young Tony? I guess it was because we were looking for something so specific. You could be right, but the character of Tony Soprano is so, so singular that nothing was coming close to that. But Michael... DNA had done part of the job for us. He brings something of, of himself, I think, as, as well to the part in the, in the way that you don't simply want a kind of mimesis. You don't just want an imitation of... Oh, no. We didn't want an imitation of any of those guys. We wanted actors to really do their interpretation of those guys. Let's talk about what that segue then, from what we see of this, this young man. In a sense... You, know, you can see where it's going because he is likable. You almost want to embrace him, but you can see he's, he's turning out tough and he is being hardened and traumatised by the experiences around him. You end up with a Tony Soprano who isn't a likable man and yet viewers rooted for him and rooted for him you know, to the bitter end. Why? Because I think he was likable. I know he did terrible things, but he was still likable. That was James Gandolfini's gift to us. He had those great eyes that were kind of sad and very deep. And you really believed and felt that on some level, he didn't belong where he was. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because I thought, when I watched The Sopranos, did I ever think that Tony could have been different? And then I watched this and that question seemed to present itself again. What do you think? What do you think? Talk about being put on the spot by the writer of The Sopranos. Uh-huh. I think I, I felt when I was watching The Sopranos that it was, that he is trapped, but when he doesn't really want to find play, ways to escape anyway because his whole identity would not exist if he escaped. And then I watched the younger Tony. I'm slightly worried about getting this exam question wrong now. I watched the young Tony and I thought that perhaps was a, 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 almost a more genetic an environmental explanation of where he ends up. Our feeling was there was really, Tony didn't really have a chance to get out of that. 
I mean, his father was in it, his all of his uncles were in it, and that he would have wound up there unless he had a, I don't know, unless he was very lucky or had become a priest or something. We felt that he really didn't have a shot. Dickie is obviously the character on whom a, a lot of the many saints of Newark turns. And again, you thought a lot more about that influence. What would Tony have been without Dickie? I, I think he would have been a, a monster. Maybe he would have been, without Dickie, he might have been uh, a more content monster. He was more reflective than any of the other guys. He thought too much. And he was really smart, so he was a good mob leader. He was smart and charismatic and tough, but he just thought too much. And that would have been the case even without Dickie, but I think Dickie made it worse because Dickie showed him the other side of, or at least talked a good game when it came to the other side of morality. The Sopranos starts with Tony from the get-go, as you say, as as a mobster, not, not really looking to give up the day job and go into chartered accountancy, at least not as conventionally understood by accountants. And he's walking into the psychiatrist's office and fans have often speculated about why he's unhappy. If I'm reading you right, you think it is because he has fallen into introspection. Is that a sort of, in a kind of Hamlet way, that once you start to, if you're in an impossible, an amoral situation, and you start to think about it, that's where the trouble begins and that's where the interesting drama starts. I suppose so, but he hadn't just started to think about it in the beginning of the show. What drove him to the psychiatrist's office was the fact that he passed out, that he collapsed. So it's the vulnerability. Vulnerability, and certainly that was not the kind of behavior to be demonstrated by uh, the leader of a mob crew. So do you think he just originally wants to be fixed like a car? You take your car in, it's just stopped working. Exactly, yeah. I don't think he wanted to go there, but he was convinced to go. And yeah, he just wanted to be fixed like a car. He enjoyed talking to her and unburdening himself, I think. And you were presented with an award by the American Psychoanalytic Association, uh, partly because, or mainly because therapists said they saw a surge in numbers uh, of men, uh, particularly in groups who might not otherwise have thought must go get a therapist, see a therapist, uh, turning up. So do you think that you did help male viewers open up about their innermost Thoughts and feelings. I, you know, I guess you're not going to tell me that's kind of uh, on your mind when you set out to write that relationship, but I'm just interested what you make of it. Would it make a real difference in society? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, maybe a lot of guys went and got help. It all depends on your view of psychiatry and psychology. At that time, you know, it was all about the talking cure and the chemical cure was just starting to come in. The talking cure, I feel, has largely been abandoned. So I don't know that all that talking <laughs> helped on it. It was a very intense look at a talking cure relationship, wasn't it? And, uh, but she was also, of course, rather fantastic in her own right, Dr. Melfi. I mean, have you never... I've, well, I, I just wanted her in my life. Did you want a Dr. Melfi in your life when you were writing her? Well, I had had a Dr. Melfi, so when I was writing her, yeah. I had a couple of them, but one of them was a female. And Dr. Melfi was based on her. Uh, there's a question actually from our culture editor, Andrew Miller, also uh, an aficionado of the Sopranos. And he said this, one of the main themes is also misogyny. It's a world in which women are perpetually vulnerable, 
perhaps the exception of those uh, who is, is in the case of Meadow is the daughter of someone very powerful. And even so, that, that can be pulled away. Is that the way that you see that world, but also the world more broadly? I see the world more broadly that way, but I don't see it much in the mob world. I mean, we could go back through a hundred years of newspapers and not find an instance of a, a daughter of any mobster being injured or touched in any way, or the wife. So the vulnerability, and we, we see that too towards women in the many saints of, of Newark, and the cruelty has some rules, and, and yet why? Be, because it interferes with the patriarchal, natural, so-called natural order, or some other reason? Catholicism, something else? In a lot of movies and a lot of art, there's the virgin and there's the whore. And that's the way a lot of men look at women. They're either one of two things. I guess for organized crime guys, they believe that their daughters anyway are virgins. An outstanding female character in the show is Carmela Soprano. And this question also comes from our culture editor, Andrew Miller, who once had a stand-up row with a close friend over whether Carmela was a venal enabler of her husband, Tony's criminality, or really his victim. Can you settle it for them? Oh, she's, in a sense, the victim. Yes, also the enabler, yeah. Do you know any relationship where there isn't some enabling going on? Seriously. Maybe not so much victimization, but enabling. I think I think it's almost endemic. Yes, I suppose it's the extremes here, isn't it? It's what you're enabling. Maybe not a great deal, but but I think most people are encouraged to be what they are. Because if they don't, if that's not happening, then they're being encouraged to be different. That gets into nagging and fighting and quarreling. Maybe I'm just talking about my own marriage. Huh? I was going to say, I, I nearly said that. I thought that would be a very, very cheeky thing to say. <laughs> shall, we, shall we just talk about our home lives for the, for the next couple of minutes? One thing I'm struck by, not only in my own uh, home, but uh, I know this uh, to be true from audiences who are going to see the many states of Newark and engaging with it, is you have a resurgence among millennial and Gen Z age groups, both see interested in what you've done now and within the the new work but also getting back into the sopranos uh, one did you expect it and how does it feel to be to be back in with the youth i always thought the sopranos would fade quickly because it was very specific about the times that it was taking place in and i thought that a lot of the references wouldn't work things that people said wouldn't work that people wouldn't know what they meant but that hasn't happened and I was also worried about, you know, the phones changed, the TVs changed, uh, language changed, but that hasn't stopped it from appealing to younger people. And, I, you know, and I've asked a lot of them, how, how come? What is that about? And one of them yesterday told me that they know America's turning to shit. And so here's a show that says that also, and with some comedy. The Many Saints of Newark is released in cinemas in the US at the same time as it will be available to stream on HBO Max. Would you rather people saw it on the big screen? Absolutely. I think this method of exhibition is terrible. Although I'll be frank with you, we didn't do that well in the theaters. And I'm told that's because our audience is somewhat older. They were still afraid of coronavirus and they wanted to stay home, but it had nothing to do with coronavirus. 
The Sopranos was a television show, okay? And everybody saw it in their home. And when they hear there's a movie coming out, they might have rushed to the movie to see it. But if they hear there's a movie coming out and a television show on the same day, what would you do? You'd say, I'm not going to drive downtown and spend money in it. We'll just look at it here. At the same time, you think they're missing something. And talk about leading with my chin to ask someone who loves the, the craft and the art of what they do. Why should we go to cinema? And this is the big question we often ask a lot of guests who've, who've made extraordinarily interesting content in, in the horrible in the horrible word of now, which I can't believe I just said, but I did. What will we miss in our lives if we forsake the cinema? This sounds so pompous, but I have to say it because I believe it's true that now I blanked on his name. Anyway, whoever it was said that movies are a cathedral, and I believe that's true. And I think there's a little bit of cathedral even in the worst movie theater. And television is not. Television is a box that sits there, and you're free to go to the bathroom, answer the phone, change your baby's diaper. All that can go on while you're watching the thing on television. A movie, there's nothing else to do except watch the movie. Even if you don't like it, you either leave or you watch it, and you watch it completely. You don't watch it completely on television. Yeah, and also you've got a generation of people who not only watch on television, but maybe have a number of screens going on at once to the complete incomprehension of their parents. I think it's true that viewing habits change, but that's, that's still a commanding argument, isn't it? It's full attention, immersion. So if I could take you back to the very first writer's room, would there be anything you would change? I'd change some people. That's about it. Characters? No, some writers. A solid if ruthless answer there, Mr. Chase. Because? We did change quite a few of them at the beginning. We had, we had contracts that allowed us to get rid of them. Well, I shouldn't say get rid of, to terminate them. And we did. We started off our conversation by talking about prequels, but I wanted to know if you looked to other films for inspiration. Uh, the Public Enemy was a, has always been a real solid movie for me. It's always engrossed me and engaged me and scared me. I was a, a kid when they did the Neville Brand version of Al Capone. I was totally engrossed in gangsters during Some Like It Hot. The character is Spats Colombo, played by George Raft. I, I was, I, I think I was only 10, and it was a comedy. But I, that guy scared me. And I thought, look at him with the spats and the outfit and these guys with cigars. It's just, and they seem to, seem to have a secret organization. And then as I learned more about it, you know, I, I learned that there is a secret organization and you have to be, allegedly, you have to kill someone to get in there. It all fascinated me, the way it was put out there in movies, probably because I'm Italian-American. So I would be, th- as a kid, I'd be thinking, God, that's, that's, that's not like my dad at all. That's not like my uncle. But then in some ways they were like that. And it's also about the fascination of, America's professional middle class with gangsters, isn't it? That's very cleverly channeled in the relationship of the society to the Sopranos, Dr. Melfi's neighbours, and that somewhat indecent fascination. That is absolutely brilliant in the sense that there is a a sense that you've been brought in to collude a little bit as well. I I would hate to say that you in any way contributed to that, but there is that fascination, isn't there? 
Well, here's what I noticed. Italian-American anti-defamation societies here who hated The Sopranos and disliked Scorsese movies and Coppola was another one because it made people think that Italians, as we call them, actually they're Italian-Americans, that's all they did was rob and steal. The nonsensical premise that that's all people thought. But I, I really dislike their point of view. And I always went out of my way to kind of slap it down. To some extent, do you understand why people might think if that is the portrayal of me and my community, that's not the whole story? But my question was really about what was the rest of the society, how to what extent it bears blame here or is colluding in it. It was just what you struck me when you said how interested you had been as a younger man. I was telling you about all those Italian-American groups that despised the mob and the mafia and La Cosa Nostra. And then we would go to these little screen, little screenings in New Jersey or wherever, and people couldn't wait, couldn't wait to tell you about the fact that their uncle so-and-so once carried bags of money when he was a kid from, from this wise guy to that wise guy. Or my grandfather once fixed a flat tire for Al Capone. They couldn't wait. Really, it's like, it was like talking about the Beatles for them. Yes, that is, I suppose that is, that is having your cake and eating it, isn't it? Or your parmigiana and eating it. <laughs> I suppose that you have, uh, you've, you've taken us back, whether we call it the origin story or for you, it is just characters that you wanted to write and will stand by themselves. Do you feel you're done with The Sopranos? I do. I do. And, you know, it could change, but yeah, I think enough's enough. Although just now when I was talking, I thought to myself, well, that would be kind of a fun comedy about Italians complaining about the mob, about mob movies, and then also bragging about them. But would I ever make that movie? I don't know. Well, I don't know. As, as long as there's just some English journalist in it, you know, who's got a little bit part who just asked you that question, that's fine. You know, I, I could sign off on that, David, if, if you're up for it. <laughs> All right, you're hired. David, Chase, thank you very much indeed for joining us. You're welcome. And thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And we'd love to know what you think. What's the greatest prequel of all time? And do you agree with David Chase that the cinema is really the only place to truly watch a film? Or do you stick to the sofa and the popcorn there? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. Thanks to everyone who sent in comments about my interview with General McChrystal, and especially to Lindy Sisk, who also only eats one meal a day. I'm trying to give it a try. I'll let you know how I get on. Tony Soprano never would. You can listen to that episode with General McChrystal wherever you get your podcasts. And if my conversation with David Chase has left you wanting more from mobsters, we hope we can make you an offer you can't refuse. The Economist take on the prequel is over on our website. And while you're there, well, why not become a subscriber? For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Fade to black. 